You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Yeah, I want us to uh, take a, a long look at Eric. When he gets back, we need to find out how much weight he's put on here. You know, serving the gospel in in Milano. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm it, I guess. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm glad to see Eric. Eric actually texted me last night. I'm not sure if it was because he was worried or what, but uh, he did. I also want to recognize Bob and Ann Livesey. Bob was my pastor, and Ann and Karen uh, did the Bible study for the women at uh, Northwest Bible Church in Houston. So they came all the way from Myanmar to be here this morning. So welcome, guys. Um, if, you've, if you have been downstairs the last few days, you have seen, I'm sure, a flood of new faces. And uh, Tom Ramey, of course, who is not afraid to go up to anybody, we're down there having a cup of coffee. Actually, we couldn't even get through the line to get a cup of coffee. And uh, Tom goes up and, of course, uh, you know, blurts out, who are you and why are you here, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're, we can't even get, to, get up there to get our uh, latte. And it turns out that they're Pine Cove uh, staffers. And uh, Pine Cove has brought in 1,400 staffers for orientation. And uh, they are uh, getting ready for 40,000 plus campers that are coming in uh, I think next week actually is when they start. And um, they've got three locations. But I mean, think of, think of the opportunity for the Lord to become manifest in, in these young lives. I mean, I think it's a tremendous thing that they're doing. So um, again, I want to welcome everybody. Speaking of new faces, if you're here and uh, this is your first time, we would invite you guys to, I've lost it. There is a, a card in the back of the seat there in front of you. And we do like to keep track of folks who are here, first timers, and uh, helps us keep track of, what, of, all, of all that's going on. If your last name is Flory, and you're in the witness protection program, we would say don't sign the card because the last thing we want to do is to blow your cover, Mike. By the way, we've suspected he's in the witness protection program for quite some time now. He disappears, he claims he's in New Mexico, we're not sure. Uh, also, if you have questions about the church, about joining, about uh, life groups, about sermon this morning, 
you can text those to that number and my call and uh, Matt and uh, Eric, if he ever gets back, will address your questions. Um, yeah, my name is Joe Deming and um, I'm an elder at uh, Bethel Downtown, although after today, I'm not sure how much longer my tenure is gonna last. <laughs> it is my privilege to bring this morning's message. I think Matt mentioned that we would be looking at the Holy Spirit, and it is true. I haven't changed things at the last minute. You know, being on the elder board, it really doesn't take bringing in some high-priced consultant from one of the big mega churches in Dallas to examine our demographics and to observe that, you know, Bethel downtown is getting younger and younger. So, I don't know, I thought maybe I ought to try and blend in. <laughs> I did not go to Woodstock just so you know. Um, but the only problem is that I just celebrated my 70th birthday. <laughs> April 17th. So I'm pretty sure that my days of blending in are over. So I think that what I'm going to do is go ahead and... Uh, <laughs> Give you <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is going to be authentic, Joe. But first, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Memorial Day is approaching. And uh, we would be remiss not to, to honor the men and women who've given the ultimate sacrifice and died while serving in the military. Lord, today we also thank you that uh, you are faithful to us, that you walk with us every day and that you are with us in each moment. We thank you, Father, that your promises are true and that your goodness never fails us. In this moment, we come to you and we lay our lives before you, Father. May we worship and adore you with every fiber of our being. May everything within us cry, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In the name of Jesus, we say, Amen. So let's start by uh, uh, talking or introing our subject. The, I, I've actually got a title, and it's called, What Just Happened? Thanks. Mark Odom has been amazing. I, I was going to do some kind of weird, strange stuff up here, and Mark settled me down, and he got, got us going here. The topic, indeed, is we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And yes, I do know that I'm breaking all kinds of Bible church rules by preaching a topical sermon. But I did check with Eric. He gave us okay, so long as I promised to be in the Word of God. And I think you'll find that this morning we'll be in, in God's Word quite a bit. Um, so, why the Holy Spirit? When you think about it, 
it is kind of a daunting task. We don't often hear sermons strictly on this particular subject. Philip Yancey, the noted Christian author, admits that as an adolescent, he developed a hard shell resistance to examining and talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, the late Robertson McQuilkin, uh, formerly the president of Columbia Bible College and Columbia Seminary, has observed that many Christians are afraid to emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to state that to neglect the Spirit is a sad thing. He identifies the Spirit as the administrator, indeed the executive officer of our triune God, commissioned to take broken pieces of humanity, like you and like me, and to transform us into the likeness of God himself. I think that uh, while the subject of the Holy Spirit is a complex issue, uh, I would say that nevertheless it does deserve our special attention. So to get us started, I'd like to tell you a story. This is a true story from my background. It all started some 25 years ago. Karen and I had just spent 12 years living overseas, first in Saudi Arabia and then in the Netherlands. The kids were getting older, so we felt, you know what, it's time to get on back to the States. So fortunately, I was able to land a job with a, an affiliate of Shell Oil Company in Houston. Being the new kid on the block, uh, in a big, large, corporate environment, organization. I felt that it was important that I recruit an ally. My ally turned out to be Susan. Susan was the executive secretary to our general counsel. She had all the answers to my questions on expense reports, business travel, Susan was the trip advisor before there ever was a trip advisor. <laughs> um, but the most important thing of all that Susan brought to the table was she knew when the general counsel was in a good mood and when the general counsel was in a bad mood. So <clears throat> I'd been there probably 18 months. As Eric might say, I was feeling good kind of a big deal. But then the phone rings. It turns out to be um, David, Susan's husband. And he asked if I might consider dropping by the hospital on my way home from work. I didn't even know Susan was in the hospital. So I go down there and uh, stroll down the aisle, and I walk into their room. And um, this is where Susan, who by her very nature was always a very private person, tells me that she's been battling breast cancer for the past 12 years or, uh, 12 years or so. And she says that now uh, she's endured 
two recurrences of the disease, but now it's come back and the doctors have told her that she has between six and 12 weeks to live. She says to me, quote, David and I were wondering if you might officiate at my funeral. Words cannot express how absolutely floored I was. And to top it off, I knew deep down I had two big problems. The first thing is, no way did I want to be doing this. I didn't volunteer. I didn't stick my hand up. But I knew I had no option. I had no choice. The second thing was I looked around the, ho the uh, hospital room. Where was her pastor? Where was her Sunday school teacher? Where was her life group? Having gotten to know Susan, I was pretty sure that she was not a believer. So, get this, two days later, Susan's checking out. So I actually go down there and uh, I attempted to share the gospel with Susan. Honestly, it was an abysmal effort. <sighs> Looking back, you know, the, the hospital room, the whole atmosphere, uh, Susan trying to check out to get home. Uh, it was just not conducive to any kind of a spiritual undertaking. Fortunately, though, I stayed in almost daily contact with her. But truthfully, she was sinking fast. And then in one of those, uh, I call it God-inspired moments, Susan has a brief rebound. So... Uh, armed with uh, prayers from Karen and me, from our life group, I call Susan up and I invite myself over. She says, sure, come on. So, um, what I did was I took my Bible and I opened up to Genesis chapter 28. A really pretty strange section of scripture. Uh, you'll remember that Jacob has just deceived his father Isaac. And he's also deceived his older brother Esau. And Esau vows that he's going to track him down and he's going to kill Jacob. So Jacob's on the run. And he gets to, of all places, Bethel. He gets to Bethel. And he's worn out, he's tired, he lays his head down to rest. And he has this brilliant dream, and I'm going to quote to you from uh, Genesis 28. It says, A ladder was set on earth, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. We then turn to John chapter 1. And you'll remember that last section there, Jesus is talking to Nathanael. And Jesus says to Nathanael, quote, Truly you will see the heavens opened 
and angels and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on Jacob's ladder, but on the Son of Man. What a vivid picture. So early in Jesus' ministry, declaring that he is the divine connection between heaven and earth. I can't explain it. I don't know, I don't understand what happened. All I know is that at that moment, Susan was welcomed into the loving arms of her Lord and Savior. It was five weeks later that I was able to stand before some almost 300 of Susan's co-workers, uh, shell bigwigs, high muckety-mucks, I call them. All of them were there at her service. And I could proclaim to them that Susan was now at rest with her Lord. Now, what happened was monumental. But I also have to admit to you that afterwards I felt oddly deflated. <laughs> Do not think for a moment that I thought of myself as any kind of a big deal. I knew different. Instead, my thoughts kept returning again and again to the question, what just happened? <laughs> so, it was years later, and I'm here in Tyler, got my life group going, and I actually took the time to focus specifically on the Holy Spirit. And I began to, uh, I think, comprehend the importance and the power that was residing within me coming from the Holy Spirit. It was both exhilarating and humbling at the same time. So, a little over a month ago, I approached Eric and foolishly, I must say, I broached with him the possibility of getting up here and talking to you about the Holy Spirit. Eric was not only supportive, but he posed to me two questions, which I would like to ask you. The first was, what did Abraham and David and John the Baptist have in common? Eric's answer was, they did not have the indwelt Holy Spirit. The second question, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, was, what does Joe and Karen Dimming, uh, Eric and Susan Barton, Art and Julie Riley, um, Matt and Megan McGill, the uh, C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, Billy Graham, what do they all have in common? And the answer is, I think surprisingly enough, we all are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is good news. All of us, part of this church age, are indwelt by the Spirit. At the moment that we surrender ourselves and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So for the rest of this morning, I'd like to explore with you the significance of the Spirit. First as announced by Jesus in 
John chapters 13 through 16, something that we refer to as the upper room discourse. And then by looking at Paul in Romans chapter 8. So in John 13 through, uh, through 16, remember what's happening here. Jesus is but a matter of hours away from his arrest, his betrayal and arrest. The cross is but one day away. Literally, this is his last 24 hours. And I ask you, where does his focus turn? There is not one hint of self-pity at all in him. Instead, he turns to his disciples, and I think in two very dramatic ways. First, pretty shockingly, he gets down before them on his knees, and he begins to wash their feet. I think what he's doing is providing them with a divine example that in their future roles, they must model the importance of ministry and of service and of humility. The second thing that Jesus does, and I think this is perhaps the mo more, most distressing of all, certainly to the disciples, is he says, I'm going to be leaving you, but you cannot follow. For three years, that's all they'd been doing was following him. The burning question for them, I think, had to be, why? Why are you leaving us? The answer has everything to do with, one, he came to earth to suffer and to die and to be resurrected. And two, he came to earth to take on himself the burden of our sins. The third thing, he came to earth to give us the Holy Spirit. So look with me at, uh, first of all, John 14, and we'll see how Jesus chooses to, to address this incredible truth. I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper, a paraclete. And he goes on to say that the paraclete will be abiding with us, will be with you and will be in you. Two things stand out to me here. First, the Greek word paraclete. It's translated as helper and comforter. During my uh, background, uh, my working experience, back when I was actually productive doing things, um, I would make frequent use of paralegals. Paralegals were uh, involved in research, in uh, negotiation protocols, in helping us prepare for meeting with uh, uh, folks at the various refineries that we operated uh, on that uh, wanted to discuss some sort of settlement. The, some of them were, were, were okay, some were really good, the best ones, though, were exceptional. I felt as if they could read my mind. They understood the corporate objective. They knew the direction that we wanted to go in. But the bottom line was, they're, they're fallible, just like me. 
The Holy Spirit, our paraclete, our helper, is infallible. True deity never makes a mistake. The second thing from this passage I take is it says the Spirit abides with me. What does it mean to abide? Well, in my preparations for this sermon, I came across Paul's uh, comments in Ephesians 1, chapters, uh, verses 13 and 14. And Paul makes it very clear. He says, in him you also... Now think, think back to when you first heard the gospel, and it really had an impact. Paul says, in him you were listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. You see, Susan, at the moment that she received the good news of God's own redemption, became indwelt with the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. The good news applies to everyone in this room who has placed their faith and their trust in Christ. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then looking back at John chapter uh, 14, verse 26. The helper, who, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance. We learn that he will teach us all things. It is not enough that we have a helper because at the moment that we placed our, our trust in him, we became like newborn babes. We were led to seek out and learn of him. For me, it was discovering influential, inspiring authors like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. He was also engaging with Paul McCain, someone that you don't know, but I do. He was a, uh, a manager at the Bonanza Steakhouse that I worked in there in Fort Worth. And he sought me out. Every Tuesday afternoon, Paul and I would meet together in the park, and we poured through the book of Galatians and Colossians. Paul was my mentor. I know that uh, Mike Hall last week talked about mentoring. Uh, Mike, Flory, and I uh, just a couple of days ago were up at uh, the Grove and we were discussing mentorship. It's something that I think is absolutely essential if you have an inquiring mind and you've turned your life over to Christ. You need someone to come alongside. And that's what I think a mentor can do for you. Notice also that the Spirit says He will bring things to our remembrance. When you think about it, my witness to Susan in Genesis 28 and chapter 1 was a pretty odd choice. If I'm going to go share the gospel with someone, I'm not sure that I would go to Genesis 28 and uh, John chapter 1. But the Holy Spirit wanted me to remember 
the message from a sermon that I'd heard many years earlier popped into my head. The Spirit knew, I didn't, but I went along for the ride. And as I said earlier, it was exhilarating. Susan is, became at that moment my sister in Christ. Then looking at John 15, verse, uh, verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. The Spirit comes to bear witness. Another legal term is used here. I kind of gravitate to the legal stuff. Now, why do you think we need the Spirit to bear witness? If you look around yourselves and think about it, I think more than ever, the world today is a hostile place, antagonistic to the idea of a Savior Messiah. But we have a spirit of truth who is both a powerful witness and a persuader. Now John 16, verses 13 through 14. When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own initiative. Here Jesus emphasizes the critical importance of our need for our helper to guide us into all truth. In doing so, it is remarkable that according to Jesus, the Spirit will never seek to glorify Himself. Instead, we see a very clear depiction of the Trinity, working together in perfect harmony with each other, Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice that Jesus never spoke of Himself in opposition to the Father. And the Spirit speaks not of Himself in opposition to Father or Son. Let's consider for a moment, let me digress, looking specifically at the Trinity. We know there is but one God, one essence, who eternally exists as three distinct persons. If you will allow me to use myself as a Trinitarian example, I am Joe Dimming in essence. However, I exhibit at least three distinct persons. I'm a father to my three children. When my mom was still living, I was a son. And for the last 47 years, I've been a husband. Father, son, and husband, but still Joe in essence. While the members of the Trinity are distinct, that does not mean that anyone is inferior to the others. Indeed, God's Word identifies them all as fully God. Another way to look at this is from our point of view while in prayer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Now, to finish our consideration of the Upper Room Discourse, look with me at John 16, verses 7 through 11. The coming of the Holy Spirit is still some 40 days away. But here, Jesus encapsulates the very function, purpose, and provision of the Spirit. And he uses the powerful term, 
to convict. Convict of what? Well, the first thing that Jesus enumerates is of sin. Simply put, not believing in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. Though all men are depraved, sinful by nature, it is the unwillingness of man to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior that ultimately brings them to condemnation. The second thing that the Spirit takes on, he deals with righteousness. Here the Spirit shatters our pretensions of self-righteousness, precisely what Jesus was doing in his encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had devolved into a spirit of blatant legalism. And then thirdly of judgment. The Spirit exposes an antagonistic world that stands judged for its blind, faulty, and evil perspective. While Jesus' death may have appeared as Satan's greatest victory, it failed and was the precursor that will ultimately lead to Satan's destruction. We therefore praise God that Jesus has completed his atoning death and that the Spirit faithfully lingers on with us. So where do we go now? Well, let's fast forward um, 25 years. It's now A.D. 58. And Paulus has witnessed the church absolutely erupt on the scene. He sits down and he authors his letter to the Romans, the preeminent gospel that emphasizes the righteousness of God, which he in turn imparts to man, to woman, to Jew, and to Gentile by grace through their faith. Looking at Romans, what do we see? In chapters 1 through 7, the Holy Spirit is hardly mentioned at all. Instead, in, G in Paul's logical mind, he looks at two things. One, he defines the enormity of sin. And the second thing is our desperate need for imputed righteousness. He does this by looking at himself as the prime example of a sinner in need of a savior. You know those agonizing passages in Romans 7 when Paul says, nothing good dwells in me for the good that I wish I don't do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? It is with unbridled delight that Paul then says and answers his own question, praise, thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. Immediately after that, Paul turns his focus to Romans chapter 8. In fact, in chapter 8, the Spirit is referenced more than 20 times. So where's Paul's heart? I think it's on those churches that he's worked so hard to establish. He's reassuring them just as, as Jesus reassured his disciples that they have a divine helper. Paul is asserting that so do we. And now if you look at just a brief abbreviated overview we're not going to look at all 20 verses in Romans. We don't have time for that. 
but I wanted to focus just on these passages here. Romans 8, 3 through 4 states that God sent His Son, offering for sin, uh, in order that uh, those do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5 adds, it's not just our walk, it's what we set our minds upon. To walk by the Spirit refers to our lifestyle, our actions. And to set one's mind on the Spirit deals with our affections, our mental processes. In short, what is it that's most important to us? The point here is what the Old Testament was not able to do with its numerous laws and regulations. The Spirit is able to do by writing His law in our hearts and giving us the power to obey it. Galatians 5 gives us a clearer picture, I think, of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Uh, looking at Galatians 5, verse 16. There we go. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The next few verses detail in horrific fashion what a life looks like led by the flesh. Verses 19 through 21 state, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and so on. We can praise God that Paul can reassure us the stark contrast of the fruit that we have from the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul begins by saying we should walk according to the Spirit. We should set our minds on the Spirit. Here in verse 11, uh, 6, 11, and 13, he doubles down. In case you weren't listening, he's saying, uh, Paul is emphatic, the choice is one between life and death, with the Holy Spirit being very much involved in this life and death struggle. Verse 11 says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. It's a wonderful thing to see someone come alive after you've shared the gospel with them. And that's what I think Paul is doing. And he's, he's really stating the, the very stark contrast between what he calls life and death that we have. Do we choose to satisfy our flesh resulting in death or do we satisfy the Spirit helping and guiding us to life and to peace? Then verses 15 and 16, more good news. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we call out Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. 
Here he bears witness that we've been adopted as children. I love that we can call our father Abba. We can approach him without fear or hesitation, knowing that he will welcome us with all tenderness and intimacy. And then finally, verses 26 and 27, the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray, for the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit asserts that he abides within, guiding our prayer life even when we're overwhelmed. He intercedes for us, praying according to the will of God. So, to wrap up, remember 25 years ago when I asked what just happened? Well, the Holy Spirit happened. He'd been there all along. He'd been there all that time. The most astounding thing to me is that he chose me to help usher Susan into the kingdom. It's taken me a while to begin to grasp the incredible truth that he's been there with me and every believer in this room all this time. So to wrap up, I see three takeaways. Takeaway number one, and this is primarily for the believer, for that person who has given his or her life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. To recap, this morning we've looked at 24 verses. First Jesus in the upper room, then Paul in Ephesians, Galatians, and in Romans. And truthfully, we've only quickly dealt with each of these passages. Our time is limited, and we've only barely scratched the surface. The New Testament contains some 264 verses that speak of the Holy Spirit. So, my first takeaway is let's dig in. You'll be thrilled at what you discover. Remember that the Holy Spirit will be with you, guiding your research. Don't be afraid to study the third person of the Trinity. God's Word is true has been given to us because the Spirit desires to walk with us, to pray with us, and to accompany us through the hard times. The second takeaway is also for the believer, and that is to rejoice. The Spirit is abiding with us, sharing our burdens, teaching us that His Word is true, can be relied on with all confidence knowing that we have a helper comforter 24-7. And finally, for that person who may be in this room this morning, on the fence, and has not taken the step of turning his or her life over to Christ, who deep down may be bewildered, wonders, what's the point of it all? This third takeaway is for you, and that is to trust. It was exactly 50 years ago that I was sitting in the TCU library with Karen, and she led me to Christ. At that moment,
that moment, the Holy Spirit took up resonance in my heart. I didn't fully grasp what had happened, but I was changed. And I've gotten closer to a deeper understanding of the grace of Christ and the Spirit's foothold on my heart. If you're here and desire that peace and joy, come talk to, talk to me. I'd love to, to sit down and talk with you. Talk to Eric, to Mike Hall, any of the elders or deacons. <coughs> Nothing would delight us any more than to sit with you and see you coming into the loving arms of your Lord and Savior through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I'd like to leave you with my favorite Bible verse. It comes from Job chapter 19. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. He goes on to say, my heart faints within me. It literally takes my breath away. I'm overwhelmed. The book of Job is widely considered to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. Yet here we see Job's sophisticated reaction to the news that he knows that his Redeemer will ultimately take his stand on the earth. Every so often when we're in God's Word, we will have these aha moments where suddenly we begin to see the true picture of God's grace. Marvelous. Just remember, we have a helper, a comforter, a teacher, a guide, a prayer warrior, a revealer of all that is true. And incredibly, he wants to transform us into the image of our Lord and Savior. He wants to bless us with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It truly is overwhelming. It should take our breath away. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come together as a family in the very presence of our Heavenly Father, whose love is freedom, whose touch is healing, whose voice is calm. We acknowledge that we are your lights in this world, and we pray that through our words and our lives, others might be drawn into your family and accept you as their Savior and Lord. And finally, we've met not in our own strength, but in the knowledge that God's Spirit abides within us in our worship today and in our daily lives when we depart from this place. In the name of Jesus, we say, Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.